Okay, we'll go ahead and get started uh, with our Bible study. And uh, we are on page 28 of our booklet. And uh, this is Lord's Day number six. Lord's Day six. And we remember that in this, uh, it's the format of this catechism is it dealt first with the issue of sin and why it is that man needs a redeemer. And now it's dealing with the gospel and how it is that redemption and salvation comes about. And uh, in the end of the last time in question 15, it talked about the kind of mediator and deliverer that we must seek uh, because we cannot provide deliverance from sin uh, through our own works or through our own righteousness. It must come from a different source than from man. And so it's asking what kind of mediator should we seek? And it gave an explanation of that uh, that one who is a true and righteous man, yet also more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is at the same time true God. And now, Lord's Day 6, the questions 16, 17, 18, and 19 are going to further explain and define what was introduced in question number 5, or question 15. So let's pray, and then we'll begin our study. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the time to be together today, Lord, to open your word and Lord, to be taught, uh, Lord, to seek to have a, a greater understanding of the salvation that you have provided for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that um, salvation could not originate on this earth. It could not come from man. It could not come from our own will or our own efforts, our own righteousness. Lord, seeing that all these things are completely uh, worthless in your sight, Lord, our help and salvation cannot come from uh, an animal, Lord, or from anything else in all of creation, but only from above, Lord, only from you uh, could we have a remedy uh, to this predicament of sin in which we have placed ourselves. And we thank you, Father, that what we could not do for ourselves, Lord, you have done for us by sending your own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, uh, you condemned our sin in his flesh. And so, Father, we pray that we would have a greater understanding of this, Lord, a greater love, a greater desire to, to live a godly life because of what you've done for us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, as well, we are thankful for uh, those men who have gone before us, Lord, who have uh, left to us such a heritage of, of good doctrine and theology, Lord, as encompassed here in this catechism. Uh, Lord, we pray that it might be used to point us, Lord, to a greater understanding of your word and of, of the truth. So, Lord, bless our time of study today. Lord, we thank you for the fellowship and for the meal that we've already enjoyed. And may you be glorified in all that we do. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> question number 16. Question 16. Here, the question is, why must he be a true and righteous man? This is answering uh, the question of why it is that the mediator, uh, the only mediator that can bring redemption uh, and bring reconciliation between God and man, that's the issue, that's the problem. Men and sinful man and holy God are at enmity at war with one another, right? We unjustly have offended him. He is justly angry and upset with us because of our sins against him. The mediator that brings reconciliation between God and man Right, He must be a true and righteous man. And so why must he be a true and righteous man? And the answer, he must be a true man because the justice of God requires 
that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. So he must be a man because it is man, mankind, that has fallen into a state of sin. It is our human nature that has been depraved and corrupted because of sin. That is under the guilt of our sin, under the justice of God, under the wrath of God, right? It is man who sinned against God. Therefore, the mediator between God and man must be made like man in all things. Whatever is true of us in terms of our human nature must also be true of Christ, right? In terms of our human nature, not in terms of our sinful nature, because Sin was not a part of the original creation. It was not a part of the nature of man when God created it. But whatever was comprised of man at his creation, the mediator must take on this nature. And then wherever sin has touched us, he must have this capacity or he must have this component to his nature as well. So we know that man consists of both a physical element and also a spiritual element, both a mortal body and also an immortal soul. And so the mediator must have both a body and a soul. And this because the justice of God requires that the same human nature that has sinned should also pay for sin. The sin must be penalized, it must be punished in this mediator, and that sin must be punished in a man because it is man who has sinned. This is why an animal is not sufficient to pay for the sins of man. God could not penalize a lamb or a goat or a bull for the sins of man, but only a man could die in the place of other men. Then also, he must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Right? This is self-evident. It's obvious. If the mediator is himself a sinner, then he has his own sins to deal with, right? His own sins must be punished, right? If I am a sinner and guilty of sin and you are a sinner, then how can I pay for your sins when I have my own sins that must be dealt with? But one who is a righteous man who has no sin in himself, then he can stand in the place of other sinners and he can take their sin upon himself and be penalized, be punished, endure the wrath of God for the sins of others. This is why he must be a true man, right? He must be a man and he must be a righteous man, right? These are the two qualifications necessary for the human nature of Christ. That he is a true man like us in all things except without sin and that he is a righteous man. One who is again without sin, without any guilt and there's no wrath of God against him. Okay, the passages. Romans 5, 12 and 15. Romans 5, 12 and 15. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So through the one man who is Adam, sin entered into the world. And then through the one man, Adam, death came into the world through his sin and that death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. 
the transgression of the one, the many died. This being the transgression of Adam, who is the first man. He is the father of all the living, of all mankind. We all come from Adam. He is the father of the human race. He was a man and he committed sin. Therefore, the mediator to deliver man must also himself be a man. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. There it says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. There you see these two truths together. Right? Death came into the world by a man, that because of his sin. Therefore, it's necessary that by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead which is the overcoming, the defeating of death and of sin. This must be accomplished by a man, by a man to bring these things about. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 16. Hebrews 2, 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. The children share in flesh and blood, that being those that he comes to save, to redeem, to reconcile. All of them have flesh and blood. They are Uh, human beings. They are mankind. They have a human nature. Therefore, he, the mediator, had to be like them in all things. He partook of the same nature that they partook of, and then that nature was punished according to the justice of God. He was subjected to death, which is the penalty of sin. And in this, he renders powerless the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So he must be made like us. He must share in the same nature as those that he comes to redeem. And he says there that he did not come to help angels. Though there are fallen angels who have fallen from their created state, who are under the judgment of God, and who will forever be subjected to the wrath of God, they will be cast into the lake of fire. He did not come to help them. Had Jesus come to help angels then he would have had to take on the nature of an angel. But he didn't come to help angels. He came to help who? He came to help men, specifically the descendants of Abraham, that being the spiritual offspring of Abraham. Okay, then also he must be righteous because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for the sins of others. Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Here, the high priest that is necessary in order to bring about the redemption and the full salvation of the people of God, 
must be a high priest, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He must be one who is himself without sin. This is why, again, this is self-evident, that none of the priests who came from Aaron or from his family were able to provide redemption and salvation for the people because they themselves were beset with sin and with weaknesses. And because of this, they were obligated to offer sacrifices for themselves and for the people. First for themselves and then for the people. But how could a high priest who himself has sin, who himself is in need of redemption, how could he bring about redemption for the people that he serves? It would be impossible for this to be the case. And this is why they serve as a shadow and a type of the high priestly office of Christ. But that the ultimate high priest that God would raise up, not from the house of Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek, the high priest that would actually bring redemption and the forgiveness of sins to the people, he must be undefiled. He must be separated from sinners. He must be holy and innocent and exalted above the heavens. And who is this one? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 And Jesus did not need to offer sacrifice for His own sin and then offer sacrifice for the sins of the people because He was holy and spotless. He offered one sacrifice and the sacrifice He offered was not the blood of an animal, the blood of a bull or of a goat, but it was the offering of His own body and the shedding of His own blood. 1 Peter 3.18 for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So there, Christ died for sins once for all, only one time, only one sacrificing of himself is necessary for the salvation of his people, contrary to what is taught in Roman Catholicism, which teaches a perpetual need for Christ to be sacrificed over and over and over again. Christ does not need to be sacrificed repeatedly for the sins of his people, only once for all, right? Once for all, this because he was the spotless lamb of God, the just one dying in the place of the unjust, in the place of sinners. Okay, question 17. Now, the divinity of Christ. He must be both fully God and fully man. Why must he be fully God? Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. One who is merely a man, if Jesus was merely a man, even if he was a perfect man, a sinless man, a righteous man, but he was merely a man, he would not be able to bear in his body, in his humanity, the full wrath of God against sin. It would be impossible for this to be the case. He could not do that for one single man, but especially he could not do it for the whole body of the church, for all of the believers, all of the elect, from Adam until the end of the world, all of us have our redemption from one source. And that one source is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you think about the wrath of God against sin. It is an eternal punishment that the sinner must endure in hell for all eternity because of his sin. 
and one sin is deserving of eternal punishment, right? Whoever keeps the whole law and yet fails at one point has become accountable to all of it, right? It was only one sin in the garden that brought about the condemnation of Adam and Eve and plunged the whole human race into guilt and into sin. But in our cases, we don't have just one sin. We have a multitude of sins, right? Our sins reach the very heavens, and every one of those sins is deserving of the full wrath of God, of eternal punishment for each and every sin that we commit. But Christ has come to redeem not only, not merely one person, but the whole body of believers, which, according to Revelation 7, is a multitude that no one can count or number, more than the stars of the sky, more than the sand on the seashore. So how could a mere man, one who is only a man, bear the full wrath of God against all of the sins of millions and millions and millions of those who make up the people of God? It would be impossible. But Jesus was able to do so. And why was he able to do so? Because in the one person, our Lord Jesus Christ, he is both fully man, therefore he can die in the place of man, but he is also fully God. Therefore, he is able in his divine nature to bear the wrath of God against the sin of man. And it is his divine nature that upholds him so that he is able to drink and to drain to the very dregs the cup of the wrath of God against our sin. Otherwise, he would not have been able to do so if he was not fully divine. It is the, the power of his divine nature that makes him able to bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath so that he is able to extinguish, to expiate, right, to quench the wrath of God that is against us. So that for the believer, whatever wrath of God was against him, all of it has been paid in full through the blood of Christ. And this would not be possible without his divine nature. So we, our mediator, it is necessary for him to be both fully God and for him to be fully man. And if he's not both of those, then he cannot provide salvation for us. This is why these areas are matters of salvation, right? These are issues that if you deny the divinity of Christ, this is heresy, it's blasphemy. You undermine the gospel. If you deny the humanity of Christ, it is blasphemy, it is heresy, it undermines the very fabric of the gospel, and there is no salvation in a Christ, in a mediator, who is merely a man. And there is no salvation in a Christ, in a mediator, who is only God. There is only salvation in a mediator who is both fully God and fully man in the one person, and there's only one mediator who fits this qualification, and who is that mediator? our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One mediator between God and man, the man, Christ, Jesus. That is why there is salvation found in no one else. Because God has not provided any other way. No other religion in the world has a mediator, has a Savior who can bring about the reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins in the people. Only Christianity, only true Christianity as defined by the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, and verse 5 and 
Isaiah 9, actually verse 6 and 7. I think there's a misprint in, the, uh, in our booklet here. So you might want to change 5 to 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this." So there, the child born, the son given to us for our salvation will be a child, right? He will be a man, but he also will be called mighty God, eternal father, right? These are descriptions that can only be true of God. This cannot be true. We can't say that of any man. I cannot say of any of you that you are mighty God or that you are the eternal father. That is only true of God. And yet here, these titles that are only true of God are being ascribed to the mediator, right? To the Christ, to the child who is born, showing that this child, this mediator, possesses the same divine nature as God the Father, right? He has the same nature, not a lesser divinity, not a created divinity, but the same nature as God the Father. Deuteronomy chapter 4, which is why we would say any... uh, cult or sect, whatever, that denies the full divinity of Christ, such as Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, who would say that Jesus is the first created being. He is a little God with a little G, but not the true God with a capital G. That's also blasphemy, heresy. There's no salvation there either. Deuteronomy chapter 4, this showing uh, that he must bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. The burden of God's wrath. God's wrath against sin. Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is described as a consuming fire. And a man in his sin, standing before God, will be completely consumed in the wrath of God's fire. If Jesus was merely a man, he would be consumed with the wrath of God's fire. But because he is eternal God as well, he is able to bear the wrath of God. The fire of God's wrath is able to be quenched in our Lord Jesus Christ. Nahum, Nahum chapter 1, verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. Who can stand before the indignation? Who can endure the burning anger of God against sin? Well, no man can. Who is the only one who can stand against it? Who is the only one who can endure it? Only one who is himself has a divine nature. Only our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ can endure these things, and this he did on behalf of his people. Psalm 130, 130, verse 3. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God should mark our iniquities against us, hold us according to our iniquities, who can stand against that? And the answer is obvious, no one can stand. However, 
God did mark our iniquities against Christ. And Christ was able to stand. He was able to endure it and to bear that weight of sin and the wrath of God against it. Only He can do these things. So if a man is left in his own sin, he, would, he will be sunk down into hell with the weight of his sin and the wrath of God against him. But Christ is able to bear those things on our behalf, right? And bring about salvation. And that's what it says in the last sentence, that he might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 11. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. So there, our well-being, our healing, right? It talks about it being satisfied, justification. All of these come about because he was uh, chastened for us, crushed for us, scourged for us. He was brought into anguish because of us, because He bore our iniquities and our sins in His body on the cross. John 3.16 John chapter 3, verse 16. There it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The love of God is what compelled Him to give His only begotten Son for the world, for our redemption, for our salvation, so that those who believe in Him will not perish. They won't perish in their own sin, but they will have eternal life. He gives through His sacrifice, He gives eternal life to His people. Then 2 Corinthians 5.21 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the result of the work of Christ. It is a restoring of men into a state of righteousness. We were created in righteousness in the original state. This is the state in which Adam and Eve were created. God uh, gave to them original righteousness, but they fell from that state of righteousness. The work of Christ is to restore men unto this state of righteousness, but to an even greater degree. Because in terms of Adam and Eve, they were righteous in their original state, but they were also mutable in that they could fall from that state of righteousness. Those that are restored to righteousness by Christ they are stable and secure, and they will never fall from that state of righteousness. It'll be an eternal, enduring righteousness because it's not based upon their own ability to keep the law or their own works. It's based upon Christ and what He has done for them. It's built upon that foundation that is certain and secure. Okay, then question 18. But who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? 
Now, who is this specifically? It has defined it generically or generally, but now who is it specifically? Who is this person in human history who meets these qualifications, right? Because this is the one that we need to look to. This is the one that we need to put our hope in. In here, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Only one man in the history of the world, from Adam to the end of the world, there is only one person who has ever walked this earth who fits this description. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation can only be found in Him. He is the only way that we can be reconciled to God. Any other source of salvation, any other way by which a man seeks to be reconciled to God is futile, it is vain, it will not result in the forgiveness of sins, but it will only increase the guilt and condemnation of man. There is only one way to God, and it is through Jesus Christ. Contrary to what is commonly believed today, that there are many ways in which a man can make their way to God. You can do it the Buddhist way, the Hindu way, the Muslim way, the Christian way, the moral way, whatever it is. You know, many people believe that, you know, we're all making our way up this great mountain and you are going on your path and I'm going on my path and another person is taking his own path. And while we're on our path, we see our disagreements, we see our distinctions, we bicker, we fight, we argue. But at the end of the day, we'll all realize in the life to come that we were all climbing the same mountain and we all reached the same goal. But does the Bible teach that? No. no. The Bible teaches that there is only one way, only one path, right? A narrow path, a hard path that leads to life. And then there is another path and it leads to death and destruction. And you're either on this path, the path of our Lord Jesus Christ, or you're on the broad road that leads to destruction. There is only one way, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. We must contend for this, right? We must believe this and teach people of the only true way of salvation. Matthew chapter 1. Also, we should be very grateful that we were born and raised in an area of the world where we had access to this truth. That we weren't born in a Muslim country or a Hindu country or a Buddhist country, right? Or, you know, even uh, in modern America today, in New York or San Francisco. But in Oklahoma, right, or Kansas, right, where these things are still cherished to some degree and there is access to these things in a greater degree. This is a grace that God has given to us that he hasn't given universally to all men. And that many of us were raised in Christian homes where we were taught these truths. You know, I was taught from childhood that there's only one way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That is a great blessing that I have in contrast to a boy who was born September 29th, 1977 uh, in uh, Iran or Iraq, who was taught that Muhammad is the only true prophet. And this is the way of salvation. That is a great privilege given to me that others have not had. But that privilege will only be useful if it results in true faith in Christ. It, the blessing must be used in the proper way. We must believe these glorious truths. Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. She will bear the son, being Mary, and his name will be Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. The historical figure that we look to, by which all of these things are fulfilled and consummated, is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, who was raised by Joseph, who was his earthly father, but he was born of the Virgin. He is Jesus of Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago there in Israel and who lived on this earth and who died on the cross and was raised for our justification. That is the Jesus that we must look to. This is the mediator that has been provided by God. This person who is a historical figure He's not a mythical figure. A mythical mediator cannot provide real salvation. Our sin is very real. The judgment of God against us is very real, right? A fairy tale or a fantasy mediator, a mythical mediator cannot provide salvation for very real sinners. But we need a real mediator, right? One who actually lived on this earth. So anyone who denies the historicity of Christ, of Jesus Christ, but still says that there is benefit and value in Christianity, these people are, they're they're about as smart as this concrete right here, okay? We shouldn't listen to anything that they have to say. Okay, Luke chapter 2, verse 11. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus Christ the Lord. This baby born today in this city, right? A real city, a real baby, real parents born there. This is the Savior. He is Christ the Lord. Look for no one else because God is not providing anyone else, only one source of salvation. 1 Timothy 2, which is necessary as well. If there were multiple sources of salvation, then would that not deprive Jesus of the glory that is due to his name as the only mediator between God and man? He would have to share his glory with others, but he will not share his glory with any other. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Only one God, not multiple gods, not millions of gods, one God and only one mediator between God and man. Only one way that we can be reconciled to God, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. He is the only way that we can be reconciled to God. He was given as a ransom for us, for our sins, so that we could have salvation. Then 1 Timothy 3.16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Here again, speaking of Jesus Christ, revealed in the flesh. He was a real man, vindicated by the Spirit. This is as it says in Romans chapter 1, declared to be the Son of God by power by the resurrection of the dead, vindicated by the Spirit through His resurrection, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. These descriptions are fitting of only one person, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No one else. And He is the source 
of the church's wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Namely, the whole of salvation flows from this one source who is Jesus Christ. All of it. All of us have a common source of salvation. Not different sources, but one source, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30. This is why there should be such a unity in the bond of faith in the church, because all of us, though we're individual people, and though we all need salvation individually, collectively we are in one body because we all are connected to the same source of salvation. The salvation flows from one source, and that source is Jesus Christ. And when we believe in Him, then we are all related or connected to one another through faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Everything comes from Christ. Now, some of these things will be manifested in our life, such as sanctification. And we are called to pursue our sanctification, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But where does that sanctification come from? Who is the source of it? It's always Jesus Christ. We're called to live a righteous and godly life. But where does that righteousness come from? It comes from Christ. He is the objective, the external source of these things. And then when we partake of Him, He internalizes those things as well so that they flow out of us. But all of it comes from Him. There's not one bit of wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, or redemption that originated in our own will or in our own human nature. All of it came from one source, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. Then question 19. From where do you know this? How can we come to this knowledge, to the knowledge of these truths? Well, this cannot be attained through human philosophy. It cannot be attained through uh, natural wisdom, uh, by uh, looking at the world through creation. It cannot come through any of these things. It can only come through the revealed will of God, through the Word of God, through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the answer. Where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God Himself first revealed in paradise. Later, He had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, He had it fulfilled through His only Son. Only the Gospel can reveal these things to us. Only there do we find out about the mediator, about his natures, about his work, about the salvation and the redemption that can bring about the forgiveness of sins. It must be revealed and it is revealed only in the gospel. This gospel was first proclaimed in paradise to Adam and Eve after the fall. It was later proclaimed to the patriarchs, then to the prophets, and also foreshadowed in the ceremonies associated with the law. So in the Old Covenant, before Christ came to this earth, before His incarnation, these truths of the Gospel were communicated, but in dark, shadowy ways, right? Through types and shadows in the Old Testament. And then it came in its full glory, in the full light, 
in the person of Jesus Christ. When he was revealed from heaven, when he came to the earth, when he lived a perfect life, when he died on the cross, when he was resurrected from the dead, when he ascended into heaven, all of these things that were typified or foreshadowed in the Old Testament were fulfilled in him, and then they rise in their zenith, and it's like the sun in the bright of day. This is the way that God has brought these things about. He fulfilled it in his son, and now it has been proclaimed in the world. Genesis 3.15, the first giving of the gospel or of redemption is there in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So there, after the fall, when Satan, who is the one who instigated the fall. He is the tempter who tempted Adam and Eve to commit sin. And as a result of his temptation, sin and death entered into the world. And yet God promises here that he would bring about the seed of the woman and that the seed of the woman would ultimately defeat and undo what had come into the world as a result of the craft and the wiles of the devil. He would be the one who would destroy the devil who would destroy sin, and who would destroy death through the seed of the woman. And this is what they put their hope in, is that God would indeed provide this seed who would be the one to deliver the people, who came to be known as the Christ or the Messiah, the Messiah who is coming into the world. Like in John chapter 4, when Jesus is there with the woman at the well, she says, we know that Messiah is coming, right? We know that Messiah is coming. We know that God has promised to send a redeemer and this is the one that we are looking for. And then Jesus announces to her that he is that Messiah. Then also to the patriarchs, Genesis 12, 3. Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, that is in Abraham, and specifically in his seed, in his offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we know from Romans 4 that this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, right? It is Christ who is the offspring of Abraham, who is the source of blessing to all the nations or to all the families of the earth through the salvation accomplished by him. Also in Genesis 22:18. Genesis 22:18. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. They are again in your seed. And in Galatians chapter 3 it points out that when this was spoken to Abraham seed was not given in the plural but in the singular. In your singular seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is the Christ or the Messiah who would come into the world and who would be the source of salvation for all believers, whether Jew or Gentile, right? Spread throughout the nations. Then also Genesis 49, verse 10. 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So there, 
Jacob, in pronouncing these blessings to his sons right before his death, announces that from his son Judah, the scepter would not depart, that the kingship in Israel would be established with Judah, and that ultimately there would be a king or a ruler who would rise up from Judah, and to him would be the obedience of the peoples, of the nations, that they would come to him. And who is this referring to but our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Then also, this was announced in the prophets. In the prophets, They choose a few passages here. Isaiah 53, which is a um, very clear, obvious Old Testament prophecy predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Because there's no way that what is said here could be applied to any other person, whether in the Old Covenant or in the New Covenant, right? Only Jesus Christ can this be true of. Isaiah 53, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off... the he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with the wicked man, yet he was with the rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand." As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So there, again, that passage there's no other way of looking at this. The only way that this can be fulfilled is in our Lord Jesus Christ. These things are not true of any other man who ever lived, whether a contemporary of Isaiah or someone who lived before him or someone who lived after him before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only true of him. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, another one. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he is called the Lord, our righteousness. 
So there, it's predicting both the humanity of Christ, and by this time in redemptive history, we have added to the promises given to Abraham and to Jacob, you have an additional uh, promise given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God promised to sit one of his sons upon his throne and to give to that son an eternal kingdom. And here, God is raising up for David a righteous branch. So this king that is being raised up for David, it, it is from David's loins, right? It is one of his descendants. He is a righteous branch and he will reign as king, but also he's called the Lord our righteousness. How can that be ascribed to any of David's just physical offspring who are not our Lord Jesus Christ? That can't be true of Solomon. It can't be true of Josiah. It cannot be true of Hezekiah, though those were all righteous kings. None of them could it be said that they are the Lord and that they are the source of righteousness for the people. There's only one person that that can be true of, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. So here, I mean, obviously it's very clear that what Micah is predicting and prophesying is not merely some physical restoration of the people. He's talking about a spiritual reality. He's talking about sin, deliverance from sin, predicting a future day in which these things are going to be accomplished by God. So the Old Testament is not dealing with merely carnal, worldly, physical realities. It's dealing with sin, right, which is the greatest issue, the original issue introduced into the world in Genesis chapter 3. And here Micah is predicting the salvation of God that will be accomplished in the latter days in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we read Wednesday night from Micah chapter 5, he also predicts the birthplace of the Messiah in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. So he's predicting these things. Acts 10.43. Acts 10.43 says, Of him being of Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's the fulfillment of Micah chapter 7, 18 to 20. Through Christ, through him, right? This is what the prophets are predicting, that everyone who believes in the name of Christ will receive the forgiveness of his sins. All their sins will be wiped away. Then Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. God spoke to the fathers in many portions and in many ways. In many different ways, he communicated to them in over a long period of time. 
over thousands of years, God spoke to them. But then in these last days, He's spoken in His Son. They predicted, and then He has come, and now the full final revelation of God has been given in the Son. Then also, they speak of the ceremonies of the law, foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. These things also were typifying in some way either the person or the work of Christ, right? The person and work of Christ are communicated through shadows and types, many different shadows, many different types, whether a person, whether an office, whether a ceremony, all of them in one way or another are communicating something about Jesus Christ. And there are many of them in the Old Testament that are communicating some component or aspect of either the person or work of Christ in this uh, shadowy, uh, typical way. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Here, they just uh, throw one of these in here. <laughs> so they, they give one, and then, but there's many, many of these that would be in the Old Testament. They put uh, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 7. And really, all of it would go together. We'll read verse 7. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. There, Aaron in the priesthood is a shadow or type of Christ. That's what they're saying here. But also the offering, the sacrifice, the temple, the altar, all of these are shadows and types of Christ. He's the fulfillment of every component and aspect of the rituals that were there in the Old Testament. John chapter 5, John 5 and verse 46 John 5:46 says For if you believed Moses you would believe me for he wrote about me but if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words Moses wrote about Christ he wrote about Christ he did so explicitly in Deuteronomy 18:15 when he told the people that God would raise up for them a prophet like him from among their brothers and he's the one that they should listen to so he predicted the prophetic role of Christ, that he would be the ultimate prophet of God, that God would raise up, that the people should listen to. But also Moses wrote about Christ through many of these institutions and ceremonies that were established in the law of Moses. He wrote about him and told the people to put their hope in the coming of Christ. But if you don't believe Moses, then how are you going to believe Christ? Right? There is... Uh, unity in terms of their message in the way of salvation, there is continuity between the message of Moses, the salvation he was teaching, and the salvation that comes through Christ. Moses wasn't teaching works-based salvation as the hope of the people, right? He wasn't doing that. He was teaching them to put their hope in the promise of God that he had given to Abraham, that is the seed of Abraham that would come, that is where that they should put their hope in those things. Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. We know this, and we'll continue to see this, that much of Hebrews is, well, all of Hebrews is dealing with this relationship between the new covenant and the old covenant. What are the relationship of these two covenants and what God is doing in this present world? And that is a very key point of 
biblical interpretation, right? If we don't understand the relationship, then we can get off into the weeds and we can do things that are not good, right? So we have to understand the relationship between these two covenants so that we are properly dividing the word of truth. That's what the book of Hebrews is dealing with primarily. What is the relationship between Christ and specifically the old covenant and the law of Moses and the institutions established by Moses? Hebrews 10 verse 1, for the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the law has only a shadow of the good things to come. It taught these things in a shadowy way, but the substance belongs to Christ. Those things in the law were ineffectual in terms of actually taking away the sins of the people. They could never purify the conscience of the sinner. The blood of the bull or goat was not able to do so. And this is because they were only a shadow. Only the substance is able to take away our sin. And who is the substance of all those shadows? It is Jesus Christ. It is his offering of his body once for all that is able to purify our conscience from dead works. So those things are typified foreshadowed in the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. Then finally, all of this was realized or fulfilled through the only Son. Right? What they communicated in these shadows and types, all of it was then fulfilled in the person and work of Christ, where we have the clearest picture, uh, right? the clarity of redemption is seen in His person and in his work. There we see all of the wisdom and fullness of God. What was communicated to them through many portions in many ways, right? Over many, many years, all of it was fulfilled during a very short period of time, during a time of three years in the person and work of Christ. So what God communicated over thousands of years by way of shadow and type, all of it was fulfilled in the public ministry of Christ and then specifically his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God, all of that happened within a very, very short period of time, right? Just a matter of years. And this is when God flooded the world with revelation, with light, with clarity in terms of the gospel in the person and work of Christ. Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verse 4. says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. We're not seeking righteousness through the law. 
we're seeking it through Christ. He is the end of the law. The purpose of the law is to bind men up into their sin so that they would look for righteousness, not in their own works, but in the person of Christ. Not in the ceremonies of the law, but in what they point to, that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5. It says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, according to God's wisdom in the counsel of his own will, he did not send Christ into the world immediately after sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve. Christ was not the first person born to Adam and Eve. Now, God could have done that if he had been pleased to do so. He could have sent him then, and he could have died on the cross then as a sacrifice for sin. But in God's wisdom and his infinite counsel, he determined that there would be thousands of years of human history, that there would be the establishment and the bringing of the old covenant, that it would be ratified and put there amongst the people of Israel for a period of 1,500 years, and then in the fullness of time, according to his wisdom, then he would send Christ into the world and that he would be born under that law, right? Both under the law uh, that was reestablished, the law of works, uh, reestablished there in the Ten Commandments, and under the law, the ceremonial laws there of Moses. He would be subjected to those things because he came to redeem those who are under the law. We are under the curse of the law because we are still under, in our natural state, the original covenant that was given to Adam. And we are dead in that covenant. And Christ had to come under that covenant, fulfill its terms, take the curse of that covenant upon himself in order to free us who are under the law and under the curse of the law in that way. So that we might now belong to a new covenant, to a different covenant, that is, be in the covenant of grace, by which God relates to us not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of Jesus Christ and on the basis of his grace and mercy. Then lastly, Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. 2.16, therefore no one is to act as your judge, in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There, no one is to be your judge in regard to these things, to condemn you in regards to what you eat, what you drink, in regards to festivals, new moons, and Sabbath days. Right? These are things associated with the old covenant that were a part of it. They are shadows that were never able to bring salvation to the people, but the substance of those things belongs to who? They all belong to Christ, and they've been fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, the, the obligation to do those things is no longer binding upon the people. That bondage has been relinquished, and there is freedom in the people of Christ for them to worship Christ in spirit and truth not according to these elementary principles of the world. Okay, that's a mouthful there. There's a lot there. And again, these uh, catechism, I mean, we could go on and on and on and on each, each one of these uh, points, but that's just a, a short summation uh, of these things is all we're trying to give 
and, and that's the purpose of them, is to provide for us you know, a framework or a body of divinity or of doctrine by which to govern and regulate the life of the church, right? So that we, we know those things that are, these are the things in the Bible that are of first importance. These are the things that are the main, the primary, the very plain things of the Bible. And these should be the focus of our attention in terms of our Christian faith and our practice. Those main clear things that are communicated to us concerning the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not that there's not a place for us to study and think about other things, but since most of the Bible is taken up with these topics, right, with this uh, the, uh, revealing of the person and work of Christ and the salvation be accomplished by Him, this should be the substance or the, uh, of what we are talking about, what we are feeding upon, what we are encouraging one another in these glorious truths.